Support for Reveal comes from Odoo. If you feel like you're wasting time and money with your current business software, or just want to know what you could be missing, then you need to join the millions of other users who switched to Odoo. Odoo is the affordable, all-in-one management software with a library of fully integrated business applications that help you get more done in less time for a fraction of the price. To learn more, visit odoo.com slash reveal. That's O-D-O-O dot com slash reveal. Odoo, modern management made simple. From the Center for Investigative Reporting and PRX, this is Reveal. I'm Al Letson. I grew up in Jacksonville, Florida, and in the Sunshine State, you are never far from a beach. It's my go-to when I need some peace. The ocean demands that you be in the moment. You've got to leave your phone, your work, and all your worries on the shore. We go to the beach to get away, but what happens when the water comes to us and the ocean becomes a source of our worries? Scientists predict average sea levels at the end of this century will be about a foot higher than they were in 2000. And that's if the world succeeds in curbing greenhouse gas emissions. So that's an optimistic scenario. The bad news version? we could be in for as much as six feet of sea level rise. In the U.S., coastal areas from New York to Florida and California are spending billions to try and prepare for the rising waters. But as the United States tries to adapt, we have a lot to learn from other parts of the world that know what it's like to live with water. Lots of it. It's raining like crazy today in Lagos. And everywhere is flooded. In front of me, honestly, I see school kids coming back from school. It's around 3 p.m. And they have their school sandals off and they're just walking in in the water because the the waters are so high at this point. That's Shola Lawal, a reporter from Nigeria. And the water really comes pretty close to the door handle of a normal sedan. She recorded that during a summer rainy season in Lagos. Completely an ordinary experience in Lagos. You know, Lagos has a really poor drainage system. um, So streets and buildings get flooded all the time. And when you add the rising seas to the mix, you realize that Lagos is actually disappearing. Um, The coast right now is, is already eroding. Lagos is the largest city in Africa's most populated country. It's also one of the major ports in Africa. So Lagos is basically split between the mainland and the island. Um, It's a case of two cities, really. Um, The mainland is where a lot of middle-income workers live because it's it's much cheaper than the island. And then there's a bridge that connects the mainland to the island. The island, of course, is where, you know, all the high earners live and work. And it's also where the um, business district of Lagos is. So you see a lot of offices there. Lagos is also one of those booming coastal cities that's growing even as the waters rise. And more people are coming in all of the time from other parts of Nigeria. And then there are more people coming in from neighboring countries, people coming in for work, people coming in for business. Real estate prices, of course, because of this, are really expensive, really sort of way out of reach for a lot of people. Um, So folks are kind of living just wherever they can. They're building informal communities without basic infrastructure just to survive and make sure that they stay in the city. In one of those informal communities, when people ran out of land, they started building homes right in the water, on stilts. And they get around by boat. It's called Makoko, a bustling community that sits on top of the rising waters. Shola went there for the podcast Threshold in the summer of 2021. Their latest season is about the global race to curb climate change and respond to it. Here's Shola. I'm walking through Makoko, a part of Lagos I've never visited before. This part is on land, and it's lively, chaotic, and congested. Around me, um, I see women, on motorcycles, trying to get around. I see women selling fish, smoked fish likely caught from the Lagos Lagoon. Makoko is what many people would call a slum. It's an informal community where residents have very little when it comes to material possessions or security. But they do have something many Lagosians don't. 
a potential solution to rising sea levels. While the rest of Lagos is in a constant battle with water, people here are learning to live with it. And I mean that quite literally. Half of the homes in Makoko aren't on land at all. They're built on stilts on the Lagos Lagoon. So I'm currently waiting on the street for my fixer, Dennis, to join me. And he will take me, hopefully, um, to the floating community itself. Hello, <laughs> Dennis just joined me. My guide to Makoko is Dennis Honkani. He's going to take me to the part of the community that sits on the water. He's lived here all his life and knows this place inside and out. He and I speak Yoruba together. It's one of the main native languages of Nigeria. I was just talking to Dennis about where he grew up. He says he was born right on the water. And that he's basically a fish. People have lived in Makoko since at least the 19th century, and fishing has always been at the center of life here. There's a huge fish market in the community, and the people of Makoko sell fish in markets in other parts of Lagos too. Oh, lots of fish smoking places. Lots and lots of fish. There's so much fish here. It looks delicious, really. It's hard to know how many people actually live here. Estimates place it between 40,000 to 300,000 people. That range is so wide because there's never been an official census. It's a community that grows and changes all the time. These houses are tiny. People here are cramped together in tight quarters. From any one apartment, you can hear the conversations going on in neighboring houses. We walk through row after row of small houses on swampy land. And I know I'm getting close to the water when I start to see houses on short stilts and when my feet start to sink deeper into the ground as I walk. So now we are approaching the water community itself. We've arrived at the edge of the Lagos Lagoon. It's a big pool of water, about 30 miles long, protected from the full force of the Atlantic Ocean by a long sand spit. So just to try to describe the houses, they are on stilts, just rising above the, the lagoon. The lagoon is dark, murky, and the houses are just floating above it. Dozens of teenage boys are paddling wooden boats between the rows of houses that appear to float on the water. The boys are like cabbies. They know where everybody lives, and they take you where you want to go for a small fee. So we are at the waterfront now. Oh, I think we're about to get into a boat. Dennis helps me into a wooden canoe that dips from side to side as I step in. Uh, okay. Yes, successful. Okay. I struggle to find my balance, while all around me, tiny kids, women with mountains of smoked fish to sell, and young girls out to sell groceries, expertly navigate the waters. Makoko is a tangle of waterways, as busy as any Lagos street. Collusion. On sea. I really almost fell into the water just now. <laughs> Building on the water is not necessarily about climate change for people in Makoko. They're doing this because they need somewhere to live. And there's not enough land in Lagos. And it's not that climate change and rising waters don't impact the people of Makoko. But living in homes in the Lagos Lagoon, where water rises and falls throughout the day, may be helping them to prepare for these impacts. They have first-hand lived experience with ever-changing sea levels, and they've built their homes on stilts with those changes in mind. They figured out how to trade and move around their community in canoes instead of cars or buses. The people of Makoko are doing what people have done in all kinds of habitats for all of human history, really. 
They're turning this unlikely place into a home using their resourcefulness and their determination. In front of me is a house that is being renovated. Dennis introduces me to a carpenter named Michael Father. Everyone here just calls him Father. His specialty is building on water. Father tells me that the trick to building a water house is a very strong foundation. He says he starts with stilts about 12 feet long, which he pounds halfway into the bed of the lagoon. He uses a special wood that doesn't easily rot. It's called pakba in our native Yoruba language. Father makes the foundations of the homes, and then people add their own personal touches. Some houses here are painted in bright colors, and others are just plain wood. To build a home here in Makoko, you spend about a million naira. That's around $2,000. It's much cheaper than buying a house in other parts of Lagos. Still, in Nigeria, the minimum wage is low. It's the equivalent of about 70 US dollars a month. So spending $2,000 to build a floating home is big money for many people. Father says it takes a lot of effort to make the foundations for the floating houses, weeks sometimes. But that effort pays off. He says houses here can stand for 20 years before collapsing into the lagoon. Still, a lot of basic infrastructure is missing in Makoko. Most people have electricity, but there's no indoor plumbing or proper garbage disposal. And there are no hospitals in the community. Father's wife, Victoria, told me that the difficulty in getting to a health center can actually lead to some very dangerous situations, especially for women. Victoria tells me that it takes a while to paddle a pregnant woman in labor out to government hospitals on the land. Many women have died because of that, she says. And now, some are even too scared to have babies. Dennis and I get back into the canoe. As we paddle around, I get a strong sense of community, like everyone knows each other here. People laugh a lot at themselves and at newcomers like me who can't find their balance in the canoes. But I also get the feeling that I'm intruding. Many reporters have come here over the years. I see people look at me now with distrust, like they're thinking, oh, Another outsider coming to see how poor we are. What else is new? And in some ways, they're right. Even though I lived in Lagos for a decade, I'm kind of shocked by some aspects of life here. There's garbage and human poop floating all around us. The water itself has a smell that I'm not a fan of because it stayed in one place for too long. The smell sticks to the back of my tongue, making it hard to swallow. Sometimes I hold my breath till I feel lightheaded. A lot of people dream about living next to a beautiful, wide open beach. But living right in the water, especially if that water is a stagnant lagoon, is another thing entirely. It's hard, but it may also be the wave of the future for Lagos. The city has a growing population, limited land area, poor drainage systems, and a natural tendency to flood. When the heavy rains start, as they do every year in April and in October, the water has nowhere to go. The cradle of civilization is known to be settled around water in Mesopotamia and cities have always settled around water because of agriculture, infrastructure, transportation. That's Kunle Adeyemi, an architect from Lagos. One of his passions is affordable and sustainable housing. And he says watching the city struggle with flooding inspired him to design buildings that adapt to nature rather than fight it. And I remember driving around and the entire street was covered, became a river and it was literally like an epiphany that, wow, many places in Lagos 
that we think on land actually just very prone to flooding and they might really just be covered uh, with water. This really triggered my passion for building not just on land but also on water. Kunle researched many different models before realizing that the answer might just be right outside his door in Makoko. It then occurred to me that people who lived in Makoko were building some of the cheapest dwellings. They have found a way to develop communities and almost a city, and they were building it on water, not land. People in Makoko are actually at the forefront of an emerging global trend. In the Netherlands, new floating communities are being planned and prototyped. It's also happening in the Maldives and other countries. But Makoko is way past the modeling stage. It's happening. People are leaving this experiment right now. And Kunle has ideas for how to improve it. We're developing infrastructure solutions for managing wastes, managing water, clean water. And our vision is to create water cities and develop communities like Makoko into modern, thriving, inclusive, and beautiful uh, settlements. Many of Africa's large cities are on the coast. And in Lagos, half of the population lives within two meters of the sea. That's six feet. In the next 50 years, seas are predicted to rise by a meter here. That would displace about two to three million people here in Lagos alone. But this is definitely not just an African problem. Some version of what's happening to Lagos right now is likely to happen in coastal cities from Bangkok to Miami. So how Lagos deals with climate change could hold lessons for everyone. Kunle says this inspired him to innovate. He developed a prototype structure for Makoko back in 2012. It was a floating school built right on the water, the first in Africa. The project was praised as a success. The Lagos state government supported it and the United Nations. It made international news and brought a lot of positive attention to Makoko. A bad storm destroyed the school a few years later, but Kunle's company has kept refining their process. Now they're building floating hubs in other places in Africa, Asia and Europe. And Kunle wants to come back and do more. In fact, he wants to redesign all of Makoko for the people who live there now. Kunle thinks that with new and better designs, Makoko could be more livable and more pleasing to look at. He even thinks that it could be an attraction for Lagos. We see Makoko as a place of opportunity and a place that has a lot of history and we can really think about preserving places like this, enhancing the culture. It's what people do in different parts of the world. Why do you go to the floating market in, in, in Thailand? What have they got that we don't have? Kunle has worked closely with the community before, and many people in Makoko, especially young residents like my guide, Dennis, love his ideas. But not everyone shares Kunle's vision for Makoko, especially some officials in Lagos State. Most political and business leaders here are eager to sell the city to the world as a place to make deals, shoot movies, plan vacations, or meet and mingle with Nigeria's glitterati. But Makoko doesn't fit into that story. One of the major bridges into downtown Lagos looks out over Makoko. Instead of seeing a model of resourcefulness and climate adaptation, though, city leaders see an eyesore. It's not attractive to the investors they want to lure to Lagos. Investors used to come and visit, and then they used to go and complain. They said, our dwelling houses are shanties. This is Bale Francis Agono. He's one of the five chiefs that govern Makoko. His full title is actually Bale Alashe. Bale means chief in Yoruba, and Alashe means commander. The ballet tells me that many people came to Makoko from coastal villages in the Benin Republic. It's a small country that borders Nigeria. The migration happened back when there were no colonial borders. They collect themselves from different areas as fishermen. 
they came here, far back 18th century, while here was swampy, when there was no traces of life. The Bala says the Lagos royal family let the first settlers leave here so they could be close to the water and fish. It is water for property because we are waterbound, we are fishermen, and we live on water. Living on water is our main gain. Even though people have been living here for generations, the Lagos authorities want them out. They've tried to get them to vacate the area multiple times. Their plan is to move the residents to Agboa, an area more than 35 miles away. If that happens, residents would have to walk about two miles to get to the water, which means this community of fishing people would have to find a whole new way of life. The Lagos government has even tried to demolish Makuku by force, sending the police to knock down and clear away houses. The most recent attempt was in 2012. One man died in the confrontation between the community and the security forces. His death got the attention of human rights organizations and forced the government to abandon the idea of removing the settlement, at least temporarily. But the residents of Makoko live in constant fear that one day they'll be back. Especially since the Lagos authorities have demolished several other communities in recent years. So there's a lot at stake here, for a lot of people. When I asked the Bale what he would like me to tell the authorities, he said just that Makoko should not be demolished. With support from the city, he thinks the people here can survive and thrive especially as sea levels rise. As we talk about climate change, things are, you know, turning upside down. Flooding in Lagos is getting worse. But the Bala isn't worried about his community because they live on and with the water. We don't suffer for all those things. So, Makoko, if government can give us peace, we too can be, you know, ameliorating it by constructing very, very modern houses, floating houses. Everyone I spoke to in Makoko told me that they want Lagos officials to stop trying to destroy their homes. But there's a split in the community when it comes to Kunle Adeyemi's plans. While the younger generation seems really excited about upgrading this maze of floating shacks into an aesthetically pleasing landmark, Bale and the other chiefs aren't so sure. They worry that the architect's ideas could provoke the government to send in the security forces again. They want to keep quiet and try to stay under the radar. For now, Lagos authorities are focusing elsewhere. They see a lot of opportunities and money in developing pricey residential estates, places for very different types of Lagosians than those who live here on the lagoon. Fewer than 10 miles away from Makuku, one of those upscale communities is under development. Oh, wow, like, just like at the gate, it feels like we're about to enter Dubai or something. <laughs> it's called Echo Atlantic, and it's a very different approach to living with rising waters. You're listening to Reveal. It's a high-stakes election year, so it's not enough to just follow along. You need to understand what's happening so you are fully informed come November. Every weekday on the NPR Politics Podcast, our political reporters break down important stories and backstories from the campaign trail so you understand why it matters to you. Listen to the NPR Politics Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. From the Center for Investigative Reporting and PRX, this is Reveal. I'm Al Edson. Today we're in Lagos, Nigeria, learning about two very different approaches to coping with sea level rise. We were just in Makuku, a community that generations ago came up with an ingenious way to live with the water. They build their houses on stilts and commute on boats. 
People here are poor and their community is unofficial. The government thinks Makuku is an eyesore and wants to tear it down. Instead, it's putting its support behind a very different solution to rising waters. Reporter Shola Lawal with the podcast Threshold decided to check it out. Okay, it's a very sunny afternoon in Lagos. Shola is on our way to Echo Atlantic, a brand new, ultra-modern city that's still under construction. Instead of building on water, they decided to create new land and protect it with a huge seawall. I'm driving down a busy Lagos highway with my sister. This road used to be right on the water's edge, but not anymore. All around me, I can see sand, lots of construction materials. All of this is behind um, a gated fence that goes for kilometers. I don't know how many kilometers. A lot, I guess. This giant construction site sits on land that didn't exist a decade ago. It's brand new territory made of sand dredged from the ocean. It's as if Lagos has grown a new wing, a new peninsula. And uh, just in the horizon, I can see a number of very tall buildings, uh, very um, imposing structures. So that, that looks quite, quite far away. This is a co-Atlantic, a new luxury mini-city. It's big, 10 square kilometers, or about four square miles. I actually used to live near here, back when this land didn't exist, when it was just open water here. And every day, bit by bit, I saw and heard an endless stream of trucks bringing in sand and stones to build this place. This building right in front of us, yes, the third floor. So that, that used to be my room. But even though I watched Eco-Atlantic emerge from the sea, I'd never actually gone in there. It's surrounded by fences, and you can't just come and go freely. So now I'm going to attempt to go inside Eco-Atlantic. You probably not let me in, but I'm dressed for the occasion. I have a pink top and pink scarf on. I have my earrings. I look good. Um, hopefully they'll let me in. Let's see. Eco Atlantic was designed for a very specific class of people. And as my sister and I drive up to the gates in my noisy blue Toyota Matrix, I'm very aware that I'm not in that class. I'm hoping, though, that I can win the guards over with my charm. Okay, we're approaching the gate. The gate is blue. I see security guards. <laughs> uh, they're approaching. Oh, wow. Like, just like at the gate, it feels like we're about to enter Dubai or something. <laughs> we just want to see Equa Atlantic. It's not allowed, Mama. Oh, we can't even go to the restaurant. Restaurant. And yeah, we'll go now. We'll spend money. <laughs> The guard gives us a pass that allows us to drive around as long as we don't get out of the car. The first thing I'm struck by is just how huge this new peninsula is. Wow, it's much bigger than I actually thought. The second thing I notice are the roads. They're pristine, smooth and wide. It's very different from the roads that I'm used to in Lagos. <laughs> Lagos is full of narrow streets and like potholes everywhere. Eco-Atlantic feels different because it is different. Everything we're looking at is carefully planned. It's a manufactured place. The roads, the buildings, even the land itself are privately owned. For years, the Atlantic Ocean has been eating away at the Lagos shoreline. As the climate gets hotter and less predictable, the risk of flooding and dangerous storms is going up. After a particularly bad storm in 2005, the government decided to try to fix the problem permanently. It held a contest, asking companies for ideas on how to protect Lagos. The winning design came from a development firm called the Shaguri Group. My sister and I are kind of awed by what we see as we drive around. We've seen videos of Eco Atlantic online, 
showing off the million-dollar apartments and restaurants. Echo Atlantic is a unique new city within a city. But they didn't prepare us for how it feels to actually be here. Aspirational, accessible, and built for success. It's impressive. Roads run for miles into the distance until we can't see their curves anymore. They're lined with palm trees, and there's white sand everywhere. This is nice. Up ahead, we can see a group of tall, shiny buildings. I think this is a residential park. I see about one, two, three, four, five buildings that are complete gray color, huge. Driving around Eco Atlantic City, it's hard to believe that Makoko is less than 10 miles away. The contrast between the two communities couldn't be more stark. In Makoko, people struggle to come up with $2,000 needed to build a humble home on the water. Here, People buy apartments with stunning ocean views for around a million dollars. It's mostly empty now, but when it's done, this place could house up to 300,000 people. But although these two places feel very different, they are both potential solutions to the same problems. Too much water and not enough land. And as the world hits up, both problems are getting worse. I could only see so much without stepping out of my car, so I decide that I need to come back with a guide. A few days later, I meet up with David Adeleke, the communications manager for Equa Atlantic City, at the time we reported this story. We meet up in a huge meeting room with gleaming floors and a tiny model of Lagos on display. On the walls are different stages of Equa Atlantic as the city formed. We are in the Eco-Atlantic sales office and this particular place is the showroom. So you can see to my left a scaled down um, version of the, of the project. David tells me that the storms in the 2000s directly led to the construction of Eco-Atlantic. But to really understand the story of this place, we need to start much, much earlier. This project started in 2008. But the process that led to the project started long before, started in the early 1900s. He tells me that the flooding in Lagos isn't caused only by climate change, but also by another deadly force, colonization. He says the British dredged the Lagos harbor more than 100 years ago, so bigger ships could come into shore. But when they did that, they changed the natural flow of the water and the way that it moved the sand. One of Lagos's most important beaches, Barbage, began to disappear, and then the shoreline began to recede. By the 1950s, I think about half of Barbage was already gone. The waters of the Atlantic Ocean were moving closer and closer to the heart of the city. And the situation became really critical in the early 2000s. Back then, violent storms flooded city streets in Lagos. Fish poured onto the roads. Expensive office buildings, formerly considered prime real estate, were abandoned. Some of them are still standing, marked by water lines. The solution that the Shaguri group came up with was to build a huge seawall and then fill in the space behind it with rocks and sand. They've essentially created a barrier island, except it's a peninsula. They call it the Great Wall of Lagos. The wall at its base is over 50 meters wide. The wall is what protects Eco-Atlantic and Victoria Island from the, from the ocean. The Great Wall is made from thousands of concrete blocks that each weigh five tons. It's about four miles long, and it's still growing. David takes me on a tour around the city in a flashy black jeep. We get out by the Great Wall and stroll along the elevated sidewalk. Below us, I can see the blocks that make up the wall piled on top of each other. The waves are pummeling the wall, and it appears to be doing its job so far. When it floods in the rest of Lagos, Eco-Atlantic City stays dry. There are underground drainage systems here that carry the water out when it rains, and the ocean waves haven't cleared the wall. At least, not yet. All of this is done mathematically. It's very technical. They put in all the data that they need to put in, you factor in the weather. That's how we know that this is able to withstand 
the worst possible storm in a thousand years. So just to recap, this wall yeah. um, that is surrounding Victoria Island and the Co-Atlantic, yeah. it's unbreakable. Yes, this wall is undestroyable. I'm troubled by David's certainty, especially in a world that's heating up as quickly as ours. We're seeing so-called 100-year floods happen every decade now, and there's just no telling how things could play out when more extreme weather conditions set in. Still, for some people, Eco-Atlantic City holds a lot of hope. David says architects from neighboring countries like Ghana and Senegal are coming here for tips on how to respond to sea level rise in their own countries. Because it's not just a Nigerian issue, it's an issue that West African nations are. How do we put a stop to coastal erosion? Because people live in these places, right? So we need to find sustainable solutions for them. But even if the sea wall holds, there's the deeper question of who it's protecting, who this whole community is designed for. Eco Atlantic has its own power grid its own sanitation system, its own housing, malls, schools, and an Olympic-sized swimming pool. It's a privately owned and privately operated community. As David and I drive around, I see just one family that appears to actually live here. They're white. The only people who can afford Eco-Atlantic City are Nigeria's wealthiest 1% and foreigners with big pockets. Talking to David, I get the sense that something else is at play for him and the developers behind Eco-Atlantic City. Nigeria is the most populous black nation in the world. There is a symbol, you know, there, is a, there is a mindset that people attach to Nigeria. And Nigeria needs something like this to bolster its image. And it's not just for public relations sake, but for, like, for actual confidence, for something Nigerians need to be able to boast of. And this is what this project provides to Nigeria and Nigerians all over the world. So what David is saying is that Eco-Atlantic is more than just a place for wealthy people to live. He believes the city gives Lagos something to be proud of and that it can become a historic monument someday, like the Empire State Building or Lady Liberty, and command respect for Nigeria on the world stage. For David, Eco-Atlantic is more than just a climate solution. It's an image and story about what Lagos is and what it will be in the future. That was Shola Lawal from the podcast Threshold. How we respond to rising waters. It's further dividing rich and poor communities like Makuku and Echo Atlantic. And it's dividing more vulnerable countries from richer ones around the world. Absolutely arrogant behavior by the rich countries, rich polluting countries. When we come back, who will pay the bill for global warming? You're listening to Reveal. From the Center for Investigative Reporting and PRX, this is Reveal. I'm Al Edson. Makuku and Echo Atlantic are trying to solve a problem that communities all around the globe are facing as the earth heats up and sea levels rise. The changing climate affects everyone, which means solutions for confronting it have to work on a global scale. We need to figure out how to cut greenhouse gas emissions and learn how to adapt our lives to a warming planet. But what about people whose lives and communities have already been destroyed? Who pays for them to start again? The issues are overwhelming. Still, at this very moment, people from almost every country in the world are gathering in Sharm el-Sheikh, Egypt, to wrestle with these questions. They're taking part in what's become an annual diplomatic ritual over the past three decades, the Global United Nations Climate Change Conferences. They're known as COPs, and this year is COP27. Amy Martin, the executive producer and founder of the podcast Threshold, covered last year's gathering in Glasgow, Scotland, and she'll be watching this year's talks closely. Hey, Amy, great to have you back on the show. Hi, Al. Great to be here. So these talks have been happening for 27 years now. Who goes to them? 
kind of the whole world. Um, there are tens of thousands of people who come who have official credentials to enter the UN zone and be part of the talks or watch them, report on them. But then there's also tens of thousands of people who come just to be in the city where it's happening, to protest or to gather. There are side conferences that get set up. So it's a bit of a circus. But in, in theory, they all want the same thing, right? To figure out how to address climate change. Yeah, exactly. In theory, that is what these talks are about. Wherever greenhouse gases are released, they go up into the one atmosphere that we all share. The pollution does not stay within a national border. It's kind of like we have one giant well of atmosphere to drink from. And when somebody poisons that well with greenhouse gas emissions, it hurts all of us. So we all have to work together to solve the problem. There are different camps at these conferences, right? I mean, how does that break down? To just understand it at the broadest level, I would divide it into three big groups. There are the historic major emitters, the U.S. and Europe. Then there are countries that have more recently started emitting carbon, like India and China. And then there's a big group of countries that have never emitted much carbon and are still not emitting much carbon. And some countries in that group are Eritrea and Somalia, Bhutan, most of the small island developing states. So... All these three different groups come into these conferences with different agendas and different things they're trying to do. The G20 economies, that's the world's 20 biggest economies, are responsible for about 80 percent of greenhouse gas emissions. So there's almost 200 countries at these talks, but just the, the G20 economies, they're responsible for 80 percent of the problem. So, of course, all the countries that are not part of that 80 percent are saying, hey, we've done almost nothing to cause this problem, but we're stuck dealing with the consequences of it. And that's not fair. So one of the people I followed at COP26 was Dr. Salim al-Huk, and he's the director of the International Center for Climate Change and Development based in Bangladesh. And he described it this way. This isn't about charity. This isn't about giving a, a helping hand to poor people. This is about admitting responsibility. They became rich countries. But they caused the damage by emitting greenhouse gases. They must accept that responsibility. And they also must accept that that is causing harm to poor people in the world. And they have some responsibility to deal with that. That sounds really contentious. What's it actually like at these talks? It is, in fact, contentious. Nobody wants to be told to take responsibility for cleaning up their messes. And nobody likes to deal with the messes of other people and be stuck dealing with all those consequences on their own. So there's a lot of conflict in the air, but it's all couched in these very diplomatic, uber polite terms. And one of the things that's really confusing about it is the whole thing is run by consensus. So every part of a climate agreement has to be agreed on by all of the parties who sign on to it. So we're trying to get 200 countries in the world to say yes to one document. And if 99% of countries want something and one country says, I'm not going to agree to that, the whole thing can stall out. And that, that happens all the time. So another person I followed at last year's climate conference um, in Glasgow was Dr. Adele Thomas. She's a senior fellow at Climate Analytics in the University of the Bahamas. She's also been a lead author on multiple UN scientific reports. And she kind of walked me through how the process of building a climate agreement actually works on the ground. So they collect inputs from all of the different parties and groups, and they try to come up with some compromise that takes into account everyone's wants, and so everyone's disappointed. Um, <laughs> but that's how it works. That sounds exhausting. Thankless, maybe, because you're never going to be able to please everyone, right? Once everyone is upset, then that's a good outcome. <laughs> but they do get to a point where they agree on something, right? Sometimes. Usually they have come up with some kind of agreement. And the most significant win that probably everyone's heard of is the Paris Agreement in 2015. And that was huge because we finally agreed as a globe on two big things, a global climate goal and a framework for achieving it. And the goal was to limit warming to no more than 2 degrees Celsius over pre-industrial levels and aiming to keep it to no more than 1.5 degrees. So that's great. We have a goal. There's a plan outlined for how to achieve it. Unfortunately, the world is still not on track to meet that goal. And this happens with all kinds of different issues at these conferences. For instance, several years ago, the world's richest countries pledged to pay $100 billion per year to help the poorer nations embrace clean energy and adapt to the impacts of climate change. 
recognizing that some countries have done more damage than others. But after making this pledge and getting a lot of credit for making the pledge, the rich countries have actually never made good on that promise. So how have they gotten away with that? Well, in some ways, it's just an age-old game of power that the wealthy countries just keep coming up billions of dollars short, and the other countries don't really have a lot of leverage to make them follow through. And that has led to a lot of mistrust in the negotiations. That sounds really frustrating. Yeah, it is. Um, Very frustrating. And another thing that's pretty infuriating for people from a lot of the developing countries is that there's been almost no conversation around an issue called loss and damage. The richer nations don't want to talk about loss and damage at all. Loss and damage. I mean, that that sounds like an insurance claim. What, What exactly is that? Loss and damage is a way of talking about the irrevocable losses of the climate crisis. For example, there's, you know, many island nations that could become totally uninhabitable or there are species that already have gone extinct or more that will go extinct. And there's also cultural losses. You know, there's languages and cultural practices that may become lost as ecosystems change due to the climate crisis. So the people who are advocating for funding and attention to go to loss and damage, they're saying, like, yes, we need to reduce emissions. Yes, we have to figure out how to adapt here. But we also have to recognize that some of the losses are inevitable. They've already occurred. There's going to be more. And the countries that have caused those losses and that damage need to take responsibility for that. What do the richer countries think about this? The wealthier countries have been really resistant to thinking about this, talking about it, and um, they've blocked movement on it. This year, though, at COP27 in Egypt, it looks like things might be changing. But there is still a lot of resistance, you know? There's just this long and very ugly history of people from poorer countries trying to get wealthy nations to take responsibility for their actions. And the people with more power saying, oh, sorry, that's just really inconvenient for us right now. We hear you, but nothing we can do. And people are sick of that. And at COP26, the United States and the EU kind of did that. They said a lot of nice things in public leading up to the conference about loss and damage. But when it came down to it, the people who were in the rooms told me that they were blocking progress. Here's what Salim from Bangladesh had to say on the final day of the conference when that became clear. Absolutely, you know arrogant behavior by the rich countries, rich polluting countries. They're not just rich, they're polluters. They just don't want to take any responsibility whatsoever. It's a f- to the victims of their pollution in our face. I think it's a really great example of how the climate crisis is not just an emissions problem. It's an inequality problem. And the longer that I spent thinking about COP and watching it and thinking about it after the fact, I was really struck by Global warming and inequality, I think, really are the same problem. They're just manifesting in different ways. Because there is a direct relationship between countries that have emitted a lot of carbon and have had strong economic growth. And, you know, one of the cruel ironies of this whole thing is that those who've done the least to cause the problem tend to be the most vulnerable. Like, we're all vulnerable. We're all going to be affected or are already affected by climate. But people in the poorest nations definitely tend to get hit first and worst. So... Is there any reason for optimism going into this year's talks in Egypt? Well, you might be surprised to hear this given everything I just said, but uh, yes, actually, I think there is reason for optimism. Even though this process is slow and frustrating, progress was made last year. Maybe most importantly, the world all seems to still mostly agree that we need to aim for keeping temperature rise to below 1.5 degrees. That's not enough. But, I mean, we could have a thing where half of the world is starting to say we have to give up on 1.5 and we're just going to aim for 2.5, and that would be disastrous. So even though this process is maddening and really sometimes heartbreaking even, there is an incredibly idealistic endeavor going on underneath here when you think about it. I mean, we're trying to write a document that almost all of the planet's human societies can agree to. And I think everybody can understand that is hard. I don't know how hard it can be to get your whole family to decide where they want to go out for dinner, but I think most of us have experienced a process like that. We're getting five people who like each other to do something can be hard. I can't handle the five people in my household. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, so when you think about how hard it can be just to get a family to agree on something, and this is the whole world has to agree. In the last season of my show, Threshold, the thing that I kept repeating was, you know, this is the most complicated, highest stakes group project the world has ever known. And I have some real respect and sympathy for that work at the same time that 
I, like everybody I know, wants to make it go faster, you know? So I don't think that we really have a choice. We just have to keep trying. I'm going to hold on to a little bit of your optimism. Thanks so much for being here today, Amy. Thanks for having me. Amy Martin is the executive producer and founder of the podcast Threshold. They were our partners on this week's show. Check out their latest season about the world's response to climate change. It's called Time to 1.5. This week's show was produced by Catherine Miskowski and edited by Taki Telenidis. It was reported by Shola Lawal and Amy Martin with help from Erica Janik of the podcast Threshold. Music by Todd Sikafus. The rest of the Threshold team is Casey Simpson, Deneen Weiske, Eva Kalea, and Sam Moore. Nikki Frake is our fact checker. Victoria Baronetsky is our general counsel. Our production manager is Amy the Great Mustafa. Sound designed by the dynamic duo Jay Breezy, Mr. Jim Briggs, and Fernando, my man, Yo Aruda. Our post-production team is the Justice League and includes Catherine Steyer Martinez and Steven Rescon. Our digital producer is Sarah Merck. Our CEO is Robert Rosenthal. Our COO is Maria Feldman. Our interim executive producers are Brett Myers and Taki Telenidis. Our theme music is by Camarado, Lightning. Support for reveals provided by the Riva and David Logan Foundation, the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation, the Jonathan Logan Family Foundation, the Ford Foundation, the Heising Simons Foundation, the Hellman Foundation, the Democracy Fund, and the In As Much Foundation. Reveal is a co-production of the Center for Investigative Reporting and PRX. I'm Al Letson, and remember, there is always more to the story. Support for Reveal comes from Odoo. What is Odoo? Well, Odoo is an all-in-one management software with apps for every business need. Odoo has apps for CRM, accounting, sales, HR, inventory, manufacturing, and everything in between. And they're all in one easy-to-use software. And the best part about Odoo? All Odoo apps are integrated, helping you get things done faster and more efficiently. So when you think about business, think Odoo. To learn more, visit odoo.com slash reveal. That's O-D-O-O dot com slash reveal.